who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Some of you may think a podcast about representation, it's not for me. But if you're a human being, then the podcast Reppin is for you, because we all represent something as people. So are you interested in knowing what you have in common with your favorite actors, to best-selling authors, and leaders in different genres? On Reppin, you'll meet notable people you think you know, You'll see what they show up for, and you'll see what they represent. It's an insightful, feel-good show, hosted by me, Evelyn. So come and take a listen. Reppin is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. And I am so excited this morning because Sunday, January 22nd, is officially the five-year anniversary of your angry neighborhood feminist. Yay! It feels really weird to be celebrating alone for the first time. There's no one here to really like reminisce with and think with. And silly me, I had actually planned on covering something specific for the anniversary episode, but I think with me being sick and just everything going on right now, I got my weeks mixed up and started researching something else, but I still really want to do this anniversary episode that I had had planned. So that's going to be next week's episode celebrating a week late, but I still wanted to acknowledge it on the show this week because it's on the actual anniversary and I have so many feelings, most of them being positive, loving, very proud feelings, especially of myself. And I knew it would be really hard for me to think of something to say on the spot. So a couple nights ago, I wrote something just in my notes app, kind of just thinking back on the last five years and what I wanted to say and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just going to read that for you now. Well, it's officially been five years of your angry neighborhood feminist. From dreams of wanting to be an actress to discovering a love of voiceover and transferring that passion to podcasting, I would never have imagined my life ending up exactly how I wanted it to. I came up with an idea to do a podcast surrounding feminism and wanted my friend to join me in the conversation. We spent about four and a half years of ups and downs together, always doing our best to provide the best content possible for you all. Then she left, and it was tough, tougher than we ever let on to any of you, 
And I know I can say that honestly from my perspective and felt really, really lost. I feared losing the show, losing the new network the show is part of, the listeners, all of it. What if they liked my former co-host more than me? What if all of this work over the last four and a half years was for nothing? You have all showed me that I can be successful on my own, in my own way, and I have been able to prove to myself over the last three months that I'm capable of continuing this project that means so much to me. So, thank you to everyone who has been with the show since day one, and for all of you who hopped on later. You mean the world to me. Thank you for your love and support. It's been a wild ride. It's really been a wild five years. But I gotta say, ever since starting to do this on my own, you know, at first I really was looking for a new co-host, then possible sidekick. And I'm not, I'm not against that in the future. But I do have to say there has been something really empowering about being able to make all the decisions for the show, being able to do what I want with it, and not having to feel like I can't take things further, you know? I don't have to ask for anyone's permission or get anyone else's opinion. It's just me. And I feel like I've been able to be even more authentic with you all, and you've all been able to see another side of me even within the last three months or so. And I hope that you are all enjoying this show as much as you were back in 2018. I hope that you know how much I truly love and appreciate every single person that tunes into the show every single week. I cannot express how thankful I am that you are all helping me evolve this passion into a career and a job, and that's all I've ever wanted, and I'm really just so appreciative, so thank you so much. All right, moving on from the anniversary celebration, let's get into the regular scheduled programming. This week, I want to talk about catfishing. For anyone else who grew up during the birth of the internet, you've probably catfished in some minor way or another. I remember making fake accounts so I could talk to my crush on AIM with my friends or making silly MySpace or Facebook profiles to prank our friends. I once made this profile with the name I am a candle, which literally was just an account for a Google image of a candle. And I listed this candle as being married to my best friend Katie. And I'm pretty sure that account still exists today somewhere. I wonder if it actually still says on Katie's profile that she's married to a candle. That would be really funny. But sometimes catfishing can be dark and dangerous, filled with bullying, grooming, and sometimes death. One of the things I am least proud of in my life is making a fake account to sort of make fun of this girl that my friend went to school with. Now, I was usually the one being bullied growing up, but I do think that there is this thing that happens when you're in a group or with another friend who, you know, suggests doing something and you kind of jump on the bandwagon, even though in your mind you're thinking this is kind of wrong and messed up. But, you know, I was probably like 11, 10 or 11 at the time and on MySpace when this happened and wasn't really thinking clearly. And so we made this account and we were talking to this girl that my friend went to school with. And we just did it for a day because we felt really bad about the reaction that we were getting from this girl. And she had totally bought into it. And it was a really positive interaction for the most part, I think. Like she was really excited to meet this friend online. And I think it was the fact that she was so happy about it that made us feel 
even worse. We were like, oh my God, like she's going to think this person is real. And we just kind of got rid of everything and then like never mentioned it again. But the point in my sharing, literally one of the most shameful moments in my life, I cannot tell you because it really just made me feel like a bully and it still makes me feel that way when I think about that moment. But this is to say that any human being should be able to see that toying with anyone's emotions online or in real life is dangerous. But with the internet, it felt safe. And it felt innocent because I wasn't saying these things to the girl's face and I could pretend for a while that it was just all in good fun. But like I said earlier, not all catfishing is innocent. Here are some of the reasons why someone might catfish. Poor self-esteem. Someone may choose to catfish another person due to their own insecurities, such as not feeling attractive enough or good enough at something in their lives. They do it to make them feel better about themselves. They can use someone else's image or identify with another person who they consider to be attractive and good enough to make themselves feel attractive and good enough. There was this one Brad Paisley album called Fifth Gear that my friends and I were obsessed with when it came out in 2007. And and there was this song on the album called Online. Here's the first verse in the chorus of that song because it's all about catfishing. I work down at the pizza pit, and I drive an old Hyundai. I still live with my mom and dad. I'm 5'3 and overweight. I'm a sci-fi fanatic, mild asthmatic, never been to second base. But there's a whole nother me that you need to see. Go check out my space. Cause online I'm out in Hollywood, I'm six foot five and I look damn good. I drive a Maserati, I'm a black belt in karate and I love a good glass of wine. It turns girls on that I'm mysterious, I tell them I don't want nothing serious. Cause even on a slow day, I can have a three-way chat with two women at one time. I'm so much cooler online, I'm so much cooler online. Thank you for that one, Brad Paisley. Your wife is a piece of shit. (laughs) And you know what? This reminds me of someone with low self-esteem and low self-image needing another outlet to feel better about themselves. However, I feel therapy would be a better option than catfishing. Another reason and one that I'm not going to get into fully because I don't think for the most part there's any criminality in this, but um, another reason that someone might catfish is to explore their sexuality. Sometimes before coming out, it's easier for someone to make a confidential profile of someone else and live out that fantasy of being out to the world without actually having to do that in their real lives. There is a story that I was going to get into, but I felt like there were some other ones that I wanted to touch on more about the football player Monte Teo, and he was catfished online by a trans woman before they came out. And that whole story was told in a Netflix documentary. And in the end, they really touched on how the catfish was struggling in their lives a lot. And that's why they kind of played this part online. But it also really shows the ramifications of, you know, what happened to the the man that was being victimized by this other person. But I don't want to perpetuate any sort of idea that somebody who is discovering their own gender identity as being someone who is like dangerous or manipulative or lying, because I think that that's a really easy thing for people to want to latch on to. And that's really dangerous and not true. So I don't want to focus on that very much at all. But I do also think that 
there's a lot of truth in this. I think that a lot of times people feel more free to be themselves online and kind of come out online first a little bit before they come out to like family and, you know, the broader world, I guess. Um, There does seem to be some safety when it's behind your phone or computer. But also I can see why someone who isn't even comfortable doing that would want to test the waters a little bit and kind of become another person online and be able to experience some sort of like gender euphoria instead of dysphoria. You know what I mean? Live out the way that they want to eventually live out the rest of their lives online in order to feel more comfortable within themselves. But that's all I'm going to say on that topic. Some of the more darker reasons why people will catfish is targeted revenge. Some people use catfishing as a means of revenge on another person, particularly ruining their reputation in some way. I've heard of it happening where, you know, another profile will be made for another real person and they will send messages and comments or whatever as that person creating, you know, a ruining of that person's reputation or whatever and making the identity act in a way that it normally wouldn't, or making a completely different profile to lure and humiliate a person. Sometimes several accounts are set up as different people, all, quote, working together to participate in the abuse, making the targeted person feel overwhelmed. One of the most well-known stories and the case that claimed the term catfishing was the tale of Neve Shulman, told through the 2010 documentary Catfish. Neve was a young photographer in New York City when he was sent a painting of one of his photos by an eight-year-old girl and prodigy artist by the name of Abby Pierce from rural Michigan. He was so impressed by these paintings that he sent the child more photos for her to turn into paintings. They became Facebook friends. I get that this kid is a prodigy artist, but why does she need a Facebook account? I know her parents should be running it, and this story isn't even real, so speculating on it doesn't make any sense. But this, to me, seems like a red flag in and of itself. Like, no eight-year-old should be corresponding on Facebook in any way, shape, or form. This led Neve to befriending Abby's family, such as her mother, Angela, Angela's husband, Vince, and Abby's pretty older half-sister, Megan, who lives in Gladstone, Michigan. Though they'd never met, he quickly fell for Megan and found himself opening up to her in ways that he normally wouldn't with others. I have to add that Neve says a lot of douchey and misogynistic comments about Megan to a reporter for 2020, describing her as smoking hot, unbelievably sexy, super beautiful. This girl was allegedly 19, which I know is technically an adult, but Neve was like 24, and I just don't feel like Megan was grown enough yet for him to be describing her that way so brazenly to a reporter. I get that this interview was done in hindsight, but damn, it just seems super creepy to me. Neve, along with his brother Ariel and friend Henry Joost, decide to document this online relationship blossoming with Megan. She would even send him mp3 files of cover songs she would perform for him, never realizing that these performances were actually pulled from YouTube. Sometimes they would be songs including Angela and Megan's brother, adding more credibility to the songs. Why would Neve not believe this part? It seems like it actually confirms her realness a little bit, and this, I think, would possibly sway me as well. Neve told 2020 reporters that the songs made him melt and goes on to say this douchey comment. Here's this girl, this beautiful girl, virgin girl in Michigan who's writing me passionate love songs. 
Like, you, you, you on so many levels, bro. No, don't say that. Why are we bringing virginity into this? Oh my God. Like, eventually I got to talk about the obsession with virginity. It's fucking gross and disgusting. There will be an episode on it someday. I promise you that. So they would also chat on the phone and text each other constantly. Neve even photoshopped photos to make it look like they were posing together. I don't know. Neve just seems like a little bit of a creep, too. He eventually began to feel that Angela and Abby had lied to him about the details of Abby's art career and started to become more suspicious. But his friends encouraged him to continue his relationship with Megan for the sake of the documentary. But the group eventually decided to travel to Michigan and confront Megan directly. When they arrive, they meet Angela, who tells them she is happy to finally meet Neve in person and tells him that she has recently begun chemo for uterine cancer. Angela calls Megan multiple times but is unable to reach her, so Angela decides to take Neve to see Abby. While talking with Abby alone, Neve discovers that Abby never sees her sister Megan and rarely paints. Now, Neve is really suspicious. The next morning, he receives this long text from Megan saying that she's going to rehab for a problem with alcohol and can't meet him. Neve then goes back to Angela's house, where Angela admits that the photos of, quote, Megan were actually of a family friend, and her real daughter, Megan, is really in rehab. It was also Angela who had painted each of the paintings sent to Neve. This swarm of information adds up in Neve's head to understand that it was Angela all along who had been acting as Megan. She confesses to him that all of the various Facebook profiles made in the scam were created by her, but through her friendship with Neve, she had reconnected with the world of painting, which had always been her passion before marrying her husband. Angela had even told her husband that Neve was paying for these paintings that she was sending him and that he was helping her with painting opportunities. This woman is something else. Luckily, husband Vince then spoke to Neve, and he had something to say. He told an old mythical story about how live cod were shipped along with catfish in the same tanks to keep the cod swimming and alive, thus making them taste better. He further explains that as a metaphor for how there are people in everyone's lives who always keep them, quote, alert, active, and always thinking, believing Angela is such a person. That marriage sounds exhausting. But this little story he tells is why we call catfishing, catfishing. At the end of the film, it is revealed in on-screen text that Angela, full name Angela Weisselman, never had cancer. There was no Megan in a downstate rehab facility, and she doesn't know the girl in the photos she was using. Over the course of their correspondence, Neve and Angela sent more than 1,500 messages to each other. In a follow-up interview with the catfish herself, Angela, she explained that she did what she did because she was a troubled housewife who spent most of her days caring for her two severely handicapped stepsons. She also describes herself as a, quote, mastermind of deception, which can you imagine describing yourself that way? Saying, quote, a manipulator is what my husband calls me, but yeah, I manipulate and it's not right. I never thought I'd become so entangled with it. Well then, bitch, what did you think? She says that she chose to portray herself as an eight-year-old prodigy online after releasing paintings herself with negative reviews. 
It's also revealed in the interview that Angela had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. When speaking about her daughter, Abby, Angela says, she has a hard time with it. She gets angry about it sometimes. Someday she's going to know how this really came down. I do worry about how that's going to affect her for the rest of her life. Well, you know what, Angela, all of those things you should have considered before using your child's identity online. This is the thing with this story that breaks my heart is that this little eight-year-old girl, to me, is the real victim of all of this because Neve didn't lose any money or anything like that. And he didn't really even seem to be too heartbroken over the fact that Megan didn't exist. It seems like the person that is getting the worst end of the deal here is poor Abby. And let's see, this was made in 2010. Let's say Abby was maybe like nine when it came out 13 years later. Little Abby has got to be like about 22 years old right now. And I'd be really curious to know what she thinks about this movie and her mother and this whole situation and what her life has been like trying to rebuild after this situation. I mean, I can't imagine losing such trust in my mother, where for me personally, she's the person that I trust the most in this world. It would be absolutely devastating to me. After the event took place, her husband and friends began monitoring all of her emails and time spent online, which again, sounds exhausting and like babysitting. Not a great marriage. I'm going to share a few more stories because I think that the best way to explain how catfishing affects people is by telling some really notable cases of catfishing and what happened to their victims. One of the most prominent stories that is discussed in regards to catfishing is the case of Alicia Kozakowicz. Alicia, I apologize if I'm saying your last name wrong. I'm doing my best. I had heard Alicia's story before on another podcast, and it was absolutely chilling to me. In 2001, Alicia was 13 and living with her family in Pittsburgh when she was approached by a girl named Christine online, who appeared to be her age on a Yahoo chat room. Now, for those of you who don't remember chat rooms and weren't alive during this time, I never really went on chat rooms myself personally, but I had seen them at friends' houses and things like that, but it was just websites that you would go to, and there would be different, like, categories for chats and things like that. And you would go in, it's kind of like Reddit actually, now that I think about it, but you would go in and have like live conversations with people about certain topics on different chat rooms and things like that. And it was a way for people to meet other people in the early days of the internet. I wish I had more information to give you, but luckily I stayed away from chat rooms. (laughs) In reality, this Christine was actually a 38-year-old man by the name of Scott Tyree from Virginia. Alicia's family computer was in a very widely used space in the family room, a place where internet activity could be closely monitored, but Tyree often contacted Alicia at night after everyone else had gone to sleep. In a BBC article, Alicia explains, He was into all the things that I was into. He listened to what I had to say day and night, giving me advice. He was somebody to complain to and to get comforted over the eight or nine months before my abduction. This man groomed her for eight to nine months before trying to make contact. That is so sickening to me. Thinking about relying on someone for that long and gushing my deepest, darkest feelings to and then having them completely manipulate me and hurt me is so devastating to think about. 
And I'm not blaming the parents by any sense because the computers in my home were always in public spaces, but that still didn't mean that my mom knew everything I was typing and reading on the internet. Alicia said in an article for People Magazine that her parents, quote, had talked to me about stranger danger, but there's a difference between a stranger you meet on the street and the stranger you meet online. People online may be strangers at first, but then you learn about them, and they soon seem like friends. I feel like so many of us can relate to this, and now more than ever, it's easier to make friends and connections through social media. And that can be a really wonderful thing when all people involved are being authentic, but it can be incredibly dangerous if someone has malicious intentions. This story also involves human trafficking, and January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month, so I'm glad that I'm bringing up this story. On New Year's Eve 2002, as her family sat around the table to enjoy a traditional Polish New Year's meal of pork and sauerkraut, yum, Alicia told her mother that she had a stomachache and wanted to lie down for a bit. But instead of going upstairs to her room, she slipped past her family and out the front door to say a quick hello to her new online friend, who was waiting in a car parked down the block. This part makes me want to scream at my computer as I type, why didn't you tell your parents what you were doing? Why did she feel like she couldn't tell her parents about meeting up with a new friend? I feel like my instincts as a kid made me spill the beans to my mom about everything, sometimes not even knowing that what I was sharing with her could be bad or dangerous. I probably would have been like, oh my god, mom, I get to meet my friend from online. They're outside to meet me. And she would have been like, over my dead body. Or maybe not. My mom is pretty trusting. Although it was cold, she didn't bother with a coat. Maybe she thought it would be such a quick interaction that she could handle the weather for a bit. She hears someone call her name, then someone grabs her by the hand tightly and leads her toward a car, barking at her to be good, be quiet. In the back seat, she saw ropes and handcuffs. She spent four days with her captor. In an article for the thechicagoschool.edu, Alicia says, He kidnapped me, held me captive, and streamed the abuse online. Miraculously, I was rescued by the FBI. Most abductees in similar circumstances are not recovered. All right, the next thing that I'm about to say is a little bit graphic, but I do still feel like it is important to the story. Acting on a tip from one of the abductor's online acquaintances, authorities were able to track her to a townhouse in Virginia where they found her chained to the floor with a locked collar around her neck in what Alicia described as a dungeon. In the aftermath, Alicia struggled from PTSD and significant memory loss. Much of her life leading up to the abduction was difficult or impossible for her to recall for a while. Alicia's family thankfully put her into counseling to help her recover from this horrific event. But within a year, when she was only 14 years old, Alicia decided to fight back, and she began to tell her story through the Alicia Project. With the Alicia Project, she educates families and children of all ages with an age-appropriate but never-sugar-coated story of her captivity. She also works alongside the organization Protect to secure the passage of Alicia's law in all 50 states, which would provide a dedicated steady stream of state-specific funding for the Internet Crimes Against Children's Task Force. Alicia also went on to earn a master's degree in forensic psychology to provide a deeper understanding of victimology and predatory crime. I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to learn about so many horrific stories— that I'm sure reminded her of her own, 
but I think it also inspires her to make a bigger difference. Her captor was sentenced to 19 years and seven months in federal prison and was released in February 2019, where he was assigned to live in a halfway house. He was sent back to prison in October 2019 for two more years after violating his parole by visiting pornographic websites. He was again released in September of 2021. Something Alicia tells parents and guardians is this. Monitor what their kids are doing. It's not about snooping or getting your child in trouble. It's about if something does go wrong, it's there. If you find out your child was at a party they weren't supposed to or tried a beer, it's not about, look what I found on your phone. I caught you. It's not about that. It's so that if your child goes missing or if something's happening, you can prevent it. The reason a lot of kids don't tell their parents things is because they don't want to get in trouble. As parents, I think it's really important to make clear to your kids that they can come forward to you at any time with any concerns without fear of punishment. All right, major trigger warning before I go into the next story as it discusses bullying and the suicide of a minor. I'm going to tell the story of Megan Meyer. Megan was born the same year as me in 1992 in O'Fallon, Missouri to mom Tina and dad Ron Meyer. When she was in about third grade, Megan began displaying signs of suicidal ideation, and her parents took her to a psychiatrist where she was diagnosed with ADD, depression, and self-esteem issues regarding her weight, which to me sounds like the beginning of a possible eating disorder or some disordered eating habits, possibly. She was bullied terribly in school and had to move schools because the bullying was so bad. I've been there too. I had to change schools twice growing up, first because I was being bullied by my teachers so badly, not that I had many friends anyways there, and then at the second middle school that I went to, I was being bullied by the other kids so badly that I ended up being homeschooled for half a year before going to public high school. In 2006, Megan made a MySpace page despite her mother's objections. I definitely had a MySpace page in 2006 as well. <laughs> She received a friend request from a user who was claiming to be a 16-year-old boy named Josh Evans, who claimed to live in a city nearby and to be homeschooled. MySpace was crazy because it was the first time that you could see the friends you were making online. It felt safer because you felt like you knew the person better by their profile. I'm almost positive that I added slash spoke to people on MySpace that I had never met in real life when I was a kid. I would also submit my photos to these photo competition accounts, which probably could have been a dangerous thing in hindsight, but I survived. <laughs> After making contact with Josh, her family saw her spirits lift a little bit. But on the night of October 16th, 2006, the tone of the messages changed. Megan's mom, Tina, decided to sign into Megan's account and read some really mean messages from Josh, including one that read, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. You're not a nice person. Josh was also reposting messages Megan had sent him on bulletins on the site for a more public cyberbullying. Megan's mom had to take her other daughter somewhere, leaving Megan at home, but she told her to sign off. Megan did not. When Tina got home, she saw that they had been exchanging more messages, and Megan had been fighting back. Tina was shocked by the vulgar language that her child was using online. Megan got mad at her mom, saying that she was supposed to be on her side, then left the computer and went to her room. 
Megan's dad, Ron, said that the last message sent from Josh to Megan read, Everybody in O'Fallon knows who you are. You are a bad person and everybody hates you. Have a shitty rest of your life. The world would be a better place without you. Megan responded by saying, sadly, you're the kind of boy a girl would kill herself over. Oh, honey. When Megan went to her room, Ron and Tina began making dinner and discussed the cyberbullying happening to their daughter and what they could do to help her. 20 minutes after she left for her room, Tina froze mid-sentence and ran to Megan's room. In that short time, Megan had taken her life. Despite attempts to revive her, Megan was pronounced dead the following day, three weeks before her 14th birthday. The account for Josh Evans was eventually traced back to a child who was bullying Megan, Sarah Drew, and her mother, Lori Drew. At the time of the suicide, they lived just four doors down from Megan. The mother, Lori, had created the account and told a reporter that the hoax account was a, quote, joke. She initially denied knowing anything about the abusive messages being sent to Megan and told the police that the account was made with the intention of, quote, gaining Megan's confidence and finding out what Megan felt about her daughter and other people. However, another neighborhood mother who had told the Myers that the Drew women were behind it said that Lori told her that she did it to, quote, mess with Megan. You are a grown adult woman. What is wrong with you that you have to victimize a child and hurt her? Why do you want to mess with a kid? What's wrong with you? Lori's daughter, who was 16 at the time, denied having any role in what occurred, although she admitted that she was present when many of the messages were written. So I don't know how you couldn't have a role in it because you seem like an accomplice to me. Including the final message, which told Megan that the world would be a better place without her. So if you saw that message and said nothing, did nothing, I don't know. It still seems shading to me. The Drew women also implicated another young girl in the crimes named Ashley Grills, who wrote the final message and was also involved in the scheme. In fact, the Drews go on to blame this Ashley person for the creation of the account and all of its activity, and neither of the Drews knew about the account until after it was created. Well, now we are just giving varying testimonies here. Ashley, however, has stated that both Drews were with her when she created the account, though investigators have been able to conclude that it was in fact the mother Drew who made the false profile. Conflicting accounts all over the place, and it really doesn't seem like, from what I read, there was any true justice for Megan in this story. Before I move on, let's take a quick ad break. During Women's History Month, come explore what feminism means to you with nonfiction storytelling podcast Thread the Needle. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. There was a really excellent podcast series that I listened to recently called Sweet Bobby, which follows a woman named Karat Asi, a radio host who lives in London. It was 2009 at the time, and she was 29 years old. She received a Facebook message from JJ, who was her cousin Simran's ex-boyfriend, telling her that he was heartbroken and wanted Karat to help him win Simran back. Karat felt sorry for the guy, and they began exchanging messages. One day, Kirat was contacted, informing her that JJ had passed away. 
Cousin Simran gave Kirat the info for JJ's brother, Bobby, so she could send her condolences. She is vaguely aware of Bobby due to the small Sikh community within London as well as in Kenya, so she felt like she could trust this person as they were kind of like acquaintances in some way. In Karat, seeing the relationship he has with the people she trusts and the fact that he is also part of the Sikh community makes her feel a desire to comfort him through this tough time. Bobby begins to rely on her more and more, and over a somewhat slow period of time compared to the intense and immediate love bombing in so many other stories, they begin to reveal their feelings for each other. I can't remember how soon it is into them knowing each other or how developed their feelings had gotten for each other at this point, but one day Karat gets a call that Bobby had died. She was absolutely devastated and began mourning the loss of someone she felt close to. Although shortly after hearing this news, I don't know if it was days, weeks, or months, Kirat was contacted by Bobby's ex-wife, telling her that Bobby was in fact alive, but in witness protection. He had also developed life-threatening illnesses as a result of whatever had happened to him, which meant he was stuck in a hospital in New York and the two couldn't see each other face to face. Bobby always made it seem like his life could end at any moment. There would be times on the phone where he would have a stroke or a heart attack, and Karat would be frozen on the other end of the line, hoping and praying that the man she loves will survive this and all the ongoing health problems he's facing. And during all of this time, they were corresponding through Facebook Messenger, Skype, and WhatsApp, though Kirat never saw his face. Though they used Skype, he never used the video feature on his end. Kirat said, When we tried to have a video call, he told me his phone was broken and came up with extraordinary excuses for why he couldn't get a new one. I said, I'm not turning my video on either. That was me being angry. He would then say, just turn it on for a minute so I can see you, because he wanted to make sure I was sitting in my room. She says there was always an excuse why he couldn't come to London as well. The fact that he was allegedly very ill and in witness protection program makes it pretty clear to me why this dude can't come to London on a whim, and Kirat sees that too. But of course, Bobby is constantly reminding her of that as well. And the other thing that was a big red flag for me that I forgot to mention back when I first mentioned the whole witness protection program thing, like I feel like if you were truly in witness protection, you wouldn't be telling some random chick that you just had this like online relationship with, unless, I mean, I guess it must be so serious if he's reaching out to me. I don't know. This That seems like a red flag to me because I don't think you're really supposed to like let a lot of people know if you're under witness protection in some way. In the meantime, they fell deeper and deeper in love and started planning a future together. He even had her looking at apartments for them in London. They talked about wedding plans, future baby names, all of that stuff. While that was all well and good, Bobby also pretty immediately began to feel very controlling over Karat. He would monitor her movements and dictate her choices, telling her who she can and cannot hang out with. He seemed to always know what she was doing, or if she wasn't home, etc. He called and texted her constantly. Because of this, Kirat began to isolate herself. She left her job because Bobby would be mad if he heard a man with her on her radio show. She lost friends. She lost weight from the stress of caring for someone who needed so much attention and affirmation. After three years of going back and forth, of nearly coming to London, then making up an excuse for why he couldn't, Kirat started to get suspicious about him. 
Now, it's really easy to judge her for it to take her so long to catch wind of what was going on. But she was, for all intents and purposes, being virtually abused and brainwashed by this guy she had never seen, who drove fear and paranoia into her, and he preyed on the fact that she was an empathetic, good person. Psychologically, our minds do a lot of things to protect themselves. It's the same thing as someone being in a cult or some other kind of abusive relationship. She wasn't thinking clearly, and she wasn't herself anymore. She belonged to Bobby. This abusive virtual relationship, in all, would last an entire decade. Eventually, she hired someone to find Bobby's most recent address. When she got it, she was heartbroken to learn that he had been living relatively close to her, at least for some time. She didn't mention it to him at first, and she didn't immediately drive over there either. But after Bobby kept claiming over and over again that he wasn't in the country, Kirat had had enough. So she decided to drive to his house on a whim one day after she had hit a breaking point. She arrived at Bobby's house, knocked on the door, and there he was. She was furious and began shouting at him for lying to her. Then she sees his ex-wife is there. Oh yeah, and they have a son, which she did know about, which makes her even more angry. Bobby, on the other hand, is saying he has no idea who she is and what she's talking about. This makes Karat even more angry, and she eventually calls Cousin Simran, someone who has been a link between Bobby and Karat since they both know her, and Simran reassures Karat that Bobby loves her, he just can't be as open about it with his ex around, as to not cause her any pain. She then asks to speak to Bobby. Kirat doesn't know this, but Simran is telling Bobby that her cousin is very mentally unwell and going through a lot at the moment, apologizing for her behavior. Kirat, still angry and confused, eventually leaves the premises. Kirat decided to report Bobby's deception of hers to the police, and she and Simran went together to give statements and file a report. The next day, Simran came to Kirat's house and told her that she was Bobby, as well as every other character connected to Bobby that Kirat had been contacting for the last 10 years. Unfortunately, the police told her that the only victim in this circumstance was the real Bobby, whose identity was stolen. This is because catfishing is not a crime in the UK. Thankfully, Karat eventually won a civil case against Simran, which would be the first ever successful civil claim related to catfishing ever, as far as the records show. But in the meantime, she lost most of her family over the whole thing, since Simran pretty much just ignored the fact that it happened and went on with her life. And her family kind of wanted to do the same thing. They just kind of wanted to forget that it ever happened. They wanted Karat to just kind of forgive her and move on. But she was going through some really, really traumatic stuff and had a lot of PTSD and anxiety and felt so devastated and betrayed, especially that this like younger cousin of hers was the one perpetrating all of this, someone that she was really, really close to and trusted. And because her family wasn't on her side and she had to see Simran at all these family gatherings again and again, she decided to distance herself. Though we don't learn much about Simran, as she refused to speak to pretty much everyone about what happened, she did write a private letter to Karat that she legally wasn't able to share the contents of for a long time. However, they do share contents of one letter that Simran sent. 
Apparently, Simran was under the impression that she and Karat were both in on the whole thing and that they were filling voids in each other's lives through this fantasy. After 10 years of this cyber abuse, Karat is now 39 years old. She hadn't gotten married yet, and relationships can't be easy after all of that. She also worries that Bobby took away any chances she had of becoming a mother. She says, I could have met somebody real, had a baby during that time, but the other impact has been on my mental and physical health. In another case that was very, very recent, a newly minted police officer named Austin Lee Edwards, who was 28 years old, murdered a teenager's family in Riverside, California after catfishing the teen online. The victims of this crime were Mark Winnick and his wife, Sherry Winnick, and their daughter, Brooke. Edwards had killed the three in the home before leaving the teenager in his car. Police got a call about a young woman who appeared to be in distress while getting into a car with a male driver. Neighbors also reported hearing arguing in the home. Then, a fire erupted. By the time the cops and firefighters arrived on the scene, the suspect and the girl were gone. Several hours later, about 200 miles away from the girl's home, authorities spotted Edward's vehicle in San Bernardino County. When the SWAT team attempted to pull him over, a chase ensued, during which he shot at the SWAT car multiple times. He eventually drove off the road, but when he got out, he pointed his gun at the Sheriff's Department helicopter, prompting deputies to fire at Edwards, killing him. Because this story is so current and the victim is underage and hasn't come forward with her story, we don't know the intricacies of how this man was able to groom or cajole this young girl to give her information to him over the internet, what his profile was, what he told her, none of that. But thankfully, she was saved. Considering that the first story and last story I told occurred a whole 20 years apart, it shows that the dangers of catfishing is still very real. I think that we like to believe that being duped on the internet by fake accounts is a thing of the past. We all have so much experience now in social media and feel that we ourselves and our children have a better understanding of the dangers that lie in the online world. But this story turns that notion on its head. We still have to be very serious and open with our discussions to our children about who they're communicating with online. Talk to them about conversations they're having with others and make sure that your child is also behaving correctly online. T, the kid I used to nanny for, was assigned as homework to play this online game called Interland, which he was obsessed with. He played that game and won it so many times. And it was really cool. It helps teach kids about a range of online safety concerns with lessons in cyberbullying, fishing, data protection, and more. The games are super, super fun. And the music is pretty cool as well. They also include question and answer games so your child is literally studying how to behave online. Now let's talk a little bit about the psychology of a catfish now that we've heard some of these stories. A study published in Sexual and Relationship Therapy in 2020 found that people with more anxious attachment styles were more likely to be both catfished and a catfish themselves. Someone with an anxious attachment style can find it hard to feel secure or loved in a relationship and need reassurance and attention. 
According to simplypsychology.org, individuals with an anxious attachment hold a negative self-image and a positive image of others, meaning that they have a sense of unworthiness, but generally evaluated others positively. There was a 2020 study that investigated 27 catfishers at the University of Queensland. It found that catfish were motivated by loneliness, struggle with social connection, dissatisfaction with their bodies, a desire to escape, or need to explore aspects of their gender and sexual identity. Some were racked with guilt and wanted to confess, while others said they did it for practical reasons, like getting access to age-restricted sites, or in other words, seemed to be able to justify their actions to themselves. Though many of the stories told in the media involve a catfish using deception to take money from their victims, most catfishers are actually looking to exploit the trust of others for psychological reasons. And that is even more fucked up in my opinion. Psychologists also say that lying repeatedly over a period of time could have an effect on your brain. Dr. Sanam Hafiz, PhD, a neuropsychologist says, We learn to lie over time by the way it rewards or punishes us. Researchers have found that the part of the brain, the amygdala, that would otherwise send out guilt signals stops responding when a liar becomes natural at deceiving. This means that they feel no guilt or discomfort about lying, even when they're caught. And this is perfectly exemplified in Kirat and Simran's case. And for the person who has been catfished, your brain may also have adverse reactions. Dr. Hafiz says, When we are betrayed, our brains show an elevation in stress, likely an overproduction of stress hormones, to combat this perception of a, quote, attack, hypervigilance, and anxiety. When a person realizes that they have been deceived, particularly within a romantic relationship, the loss of that trust can create new pathways in our brains that cause people to distrust what that person and future partners say and do, which can make that person more paranoid and pessimistic. All right, let's talk about some signs that someone might be a catfish. If you've searched their name online, but they don't seem to exist anywhere else, they're probably a catfish. If they ask you for money early on, they're probably a catfish. If they tell you they love you too soon, that all-encompassing love bombing, question that. If they avoid face-to-face contact or video calls and always have an excuse when you suggest to meet up, they're probably a catfish. Their stories are conflicting or don't add up. They're probably a catfish. Last but not least, if they're a little bit too perfect, they might be a catfish. Although catfishing can be extremely damaging to the victims' lives, it is not illegal in and of itself to misinterpret your identity on the internet. Criminal intent and prescribed action must be present in the case, which would be evidence of premeditation or deception using a false identification to steal, extort, or otherwise injure someone. The majority of criminal catfishes include identity theft, financial fraud, and intellectual property infringement. Hacking is also considered illegal. But like I said, a lot of times these catfishing scams are psychological. It's not necessarily about the financials of it all. Also, the term catfishing doesn't appear in any federal laws. Cyberstalking, however, has become the most common crime committed by catfish. 
Cyberstalking includes using the internet to engage in a course of conduct with a, quote, intent to kill, injure, harass, intimidate, or spy on another person, causing an emotional distress or reasonable fear of death or serious injury to a victim or to the victim's family. Unfortunately, what usually ends up happening is that law enforcement doesn't get involved until the catfishing turns physically violent. I read an article where they were discussing catfishing laws with either some sort of law enforcement person or it was a lawyer, but I think it was law enforcement. And they were saying something about how like the number of catfishing incidents that are reported is so large that they can't possibly look into all of them, to which I say, then can we build some sort of catfishing department then to help support those victims? Like, why do we have to wait until something is criminally dangerous, until someone could actually be physically hurt before we step in and do something? Like, I just feel like that's really negligent and just waiting for something bad to happen. Let's finish off this episode with some super fun statistics. Do you know that 64% of catfish are women? And apparently men are 25% more likely to fall for a catfishing scam than women. But in the U.S. alone, women over the age of 40 are the most common catfishing victims. Now, if that was a little bit confusing, let me say that again. Women are more usually the catfish in this situation worldwide, and men are more likely to fall for the scam. But in the United States specifically, women over the age of 40 are most likely to fall victim to these sorts of scams. 35% of catfishing is for profit. Dating apps account for 38% of catfishing victims. And in the year 2017 alone, 15,372 people reported catfishing to the authorities. That should be a sign to do something about it. The conclusion I make after studying catfishing for about a week is that because it is still such a new phenomenon, the broader world doesn't understand how to handle catfish or their victims yet. If this term was only coined 13 years ago, there is probably still so much more to learn about catfishing and why people choose to manipulate people online the way that they do. Hopefully, as we learn more about it, more laws will be set in place to protect victims and the community at large can become more sympathetic to victims instead of simply labeling them as gullible and moving on. We shouldn't be blaming the victims for these situations. I also think that it will only become more and more prevalent the more social media grows and evolves. So please, take care of your information online. Be careful about who you share certain information with and trust your gut. If something feels fishy, it might just be catfishy. All right. Happy five years, everybody. I hope you're excited to listen to the episode that I have planned for you next week. I'm very excited. I've already started working on it. Uh, just one more big thank you to all of you who have been with me and listening to the show for so long and who have been so, so, so supportive. You mean the absolute world to me. Thank you so, so, so much once again. I can't thank you enough. If you have any topics that you want me to talk about in the future, please go ahead and email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. If you want to check out some merch, go to the link in the show notes and check out some of those designs. And if you want to show your support, the best way to do that is by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show or going over to Spotify and rating it there. 
All right, that is all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.